chance to rest and restore and be closer to God and spend more time with Him than we might get to on other days. Well, this is the third Sabbath in the count of seven to Pentecost, so they slipped by in a hurry. It seems like it was, I just said, it's the second Sabbath, but it's been a week, and it went by in a hurry. Well, last week we went to Deuteronomy 28 in the setting of God giving His laws, His statutes, His commandments, His instructions on how to live in the book of Deuteronomy. And Leviticus is pretty much the same, uh, where he laid out formally all of his laws and the things that a nation should live by. And he did this after they came out of the land of Mitzrayim, having been there essentially in captivity for 430 years, and made a covenant with them. Now, if they would do everything he said, we went over some incredible blessings he said that he would give. Now, this was a physical covenant. He did not say anything in here about eternal life. He didn't say anything about giving his spirit. He just gave his laws. And he said, if you will follow them, these are the blessings you will have. Now, let's go back for a moment uh, in time here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were men of God. He started with Abraham, who was a very rare individual who put God first in his life and gave glory and honor to God, and he said he would work through Isaac, his son, and then through Jacob not through other sons of Abraham, but through the line of Isaac and Jacob, to create a mighty nation. Now, by the time Jacob was getting to be an older man, there was no mighty nation there. And then one of Jacob's sons was sold by his brothers down into Mitzrayim, And we know the story there, how Jacob came later during a drought. And God had set Joseph up to save not only Mitzrayim, but the nations around, and Jacob and his household. I'm going to pose a question to you that I've actually never really thought of, I don't think. Maybe I did at some point, and I never heard it expounded upon. But... Here in Deuteronomy 28, he says, If you will obey my laws, I will bless you. And then he says, If you don't obey them, I will curse you. Now, he had given that same instruction to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as individuals. But he had never given that instruction to Israel as a nation. So think about this. Why did he not build up through Jacob's seed a big nation and then offer them this covenant so that if they took the chance to obey, they would be blessed, but if they didn't, they would be cursed? He didn't do that. 
He took them into captivity before they even were a nation. Just 70 people. And he put them into slavery and captivity before they even had a clue as a nation what should be done. Even Jacob's own sons were not exemplary in a lot of ways. (laughs) They conspired to sell Joseph. First, they conspired to kill him. And Reuben intervened. And then sell him. Okay, we can all live with that. Just let him go be a slave. It's fine. He's out of our hair. But there was no choice given there, was there? Jacob was sitting in his tents doing his thing. And he had obeyed God essentially. He had had some mistakes in his life. Taking things into his own hands instead of waiting for God to work them out. But God put those people into Mithraim, which is symbolic of sin. And there, over time, things got worse and worse for them until they were absolute abject slaves. And this went on for 430 years until they had increased. And here they were, children of Israel, children of Jacob. And they were in slavery. Now, he had promised Abraham, I'll make a mighty nation of you. And everything is going to be wonderful. And the first thing he did before they even were a nation was put them in captivity until they grew into a nation. Now, why would God do something like that and take Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's progeny before they even had a chance to get started and throw them into slavery, and let them grow into several million people there. Why would he do something like that? If you give people too much too soon, they don't have a chance, for the most part. We've seen it with child-rearing. We should start out with our children disciplining them. If we do not discipline our children, God says they're bastards. He says if he doesn't discipline us as his children, we're bastards and not sons. God's goal for every human being is that they grow up learning to control themselves. You do it with a little child. All right, when that child is born, and I've used this before, but it, it's, it fits here. When a child is born, it has no control over anything. Nothing. It cries at the drop of a hat. Comes out crying and complaining. Doesn't like fresh air. Doesn't like whatever. Wants to be back in mommy's womb where everything was cozy and comfy. He wasn't even always happy there, kicking his way around. So a baby comes out with no self-control, whatever. And you, as a parent, are supposed to be an adult. Most parents 
when they start first having children are barely there, if there. It's, it's easier to make a kid when you're 15, 16, 17 years old than it is to control yourself, okay? So a lot of times the parents are still children. And they have very little self-control. And then suddenly they have this kid with utterly no self-control. Now, what is your goal as a parent? To have your little baby and love it and keep it and just everything will be happily here ever after? No. Because that ain't going to happen. That kid is going to begin to grow from its utter rebellion at the smell of fresh air at birth to other problems. Its problems and the things it doesn't like are going to get bigger and bigger. And if somewhere along the line, self-control is not established in that child, he will grow to 70, 80, 90 years old still out of control. So your object with that kid is to be to that child as God is to you. It's a direct type. We as physical parents are here to treat our children as God treats us. To discipline when needed. To bless when needed. And it's funny how people from generation to generation, the whole generation basically has a different approach. Those who were born into the Great Depression era and grew up in it had very, very little. They barely had food to eat. I know my dad talked to me about sometimes when he was a kid because it was obvious he didn't care much for chicken to me, to the family. He'd eat chicken. He'd eat anything put in his plate. But it's pretty obvious he didn't much care for chicken. And I thought, why? I love chicken. Chicken's good. Give me some fried chicken. I'm happy. Mashed potatoes and gravy. Hey, life is good. He didn't care much for chicken. And he told me, why? During the Depression, that's all they had to eat for a long, long time, years, was chicken. Chicken for breakfast, chicken for lunch, chicken for dinner. And after so many months and years of that, you get where you'd like something else. And you get where you don't really care for that very much. Some of you can't even handle leftovers from last night. Much less the same thing for months and years. You want something different. Well... Those people grew up that way. And my grandmother, the generation before, grew up in part of that era and raised her kids during the Great Depression and didn't have anything to give them. And you know what those people did? Maybe you have not been around any of them much. But they saved everything. A paper clip, a magazine, my grandmother had buildings full of magazines and newspapers 
Never threw a newspaper away. Might need that. So anything they got hold of, they hung on to. And their kids didn't have much. They weren't able to buy them toys. They weren't able to give them everything they wanted. And those children then grew up feeling deprived. All I had was chicken, and I wanted some beef, and I wanted some potatoes with my chicken, or whatever. So they grew deprived. And what it did to that generation, as they came out of World War II, they still didn't have much. The nation began to prosper some, so that there was a little more, but not there enough there to give your kids everything they wanted by any means. Uh, we got new shoes once in a while, but I remember very well going to school with cardboard in the bottoms of my shoes that I had cut to fit into the shoe so that my foot wasn't on the ground. And we had more variety in food, yes. We had more of it than Dad did. But we still didn't have a lot. And our pants got too short for us, and so did our sleeves. Because there wasn't money to buy clothes every little bit. So, the generation I grew up in was not as saving and not quite as careful as my parents' generation or their parents'. But I still don't like to see things wasted. I, I like to use it all. I don't, I don't want to waste it. I'm not as tight as they were, but I'm tight enough sometimes. Now, the generation following mine had a whole different outlook. They had seen the lack of things and what they had maybe seen other kids getting that they couldn't have. Now, this generation after that gave their kids everything. Anything the kid wants, the kid gets it. And the kids came to have a great air of expectancy. Anything I want, I'm going to get. And they became very, very spoiled. And we've been seeing our nation going downhill ever since World War II because people are given everything they want. Then we went through the uh, millennial generation and now the Generation X who not only expect to get everything they want, but they demand everything they want and everything be done for them or they're mad and upset at those that they wanted to have give it to them. And our nation has gotten more and more selfish and more and more into things. Every generation that's gone by, until today, there's hardly any culture left. There's hardly any control left. The big break in that was in the 60s with the hippie movement. And it's just gotten worse and worse until 
Everybody just does what he wants to do. And there's no self-control. I don't feel like working today. Okay, I won't. I get to work. I don't feel like working while I'm here, but I want my paycheck. If I'm here, I'm working. I'm on the job. I may not be doing anything, but I'm here, and I consider that working. Is kind of an attitude. Pay me, because I'm here. So, it's been a slide downhill. I'm building up to something here. When we have a child, we are stewards of that child. And we are to train it to control itself. It's not your job just to love your kid because you had a kid. You are a steward, and it's your job to train that child to control itself. So, I've used this analogy. When you have a baby this big, you have to have complete control. You have to do everything for it, because it can do nothing for itself. Then as it begins to get a little bigger, it can begin to do things for itself. Like, put on its shoes, pull its panties down and actually go to the bathroom itself. I mean, it begins, it gets where it can actually feed itself. Those things come natural. What, what are the areas that they have trouble with where they need more guidance? That's emotional control, self-control. So it's your job to take that little child that you had to control in every way, and you need to teach it not to cry when it doesn't need to cry. And if it's crying because it has no reason to cry, it just wants something, then as my parents used to say, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> Stung. Ooh, now I can cry. Okay, and then when they cried a little while, they said, that's enough crying, now stop it. Whew. Because I knew I'd get it again if I didn't stop it. So they were teaching me, don't cry unless you have a reason. And once you run up against something, now it's time to quit crying. Does the kid want to quit crying? No, sometimes they just go on and on. Just go on and on. Drive you crazy. No. You had your cry. You got your feelings out. Now, shut up. I got to control myself? I got to quit crying? Yes. Yes, you got to quit now. Or else you're going to get something to cry about again. It's all about attitude and control. It's what it's all about. So hopefully, you can teach that child as it grows up, gets a little taller, a little bigger, to control itself. Now, we had Dr. Spock at Tuam for some years there, when it was the 50s, 60s, or somewhere along there. Dr. Spock came in and he said, Well, you know, kids are kids, and you're going to have the terrible twos, 
and the whatever the threes were, and it wasn't the fabulous fours. I forget now what all of his stages were, but they were all bad. This kid's going to be that way this year, and he'll be worse the next year and worse the next. And you got to kind of learn to live with it because you can't touch him. And then that got more and more steam, and now if you spank your kid, Child Protective Services are liable to come take it away from you and sell it into sex slavery. About 80-some percent they do that with that they get. In this country, today. So we're under the gun to try to raise a kid who can control himself and be a decent, upstanding human being. And this doesn't happen. We get people that are 30, 40, 50 years old, and they still can't control what they eat, still can't control what they drink, still can't control what drugs they take, still can't hold a job, still can't function in society. Tens of millions of them in our country today. Because parents didn't know how to, or never learned how to, teach that child as it grew up. So, you have your hands close when they're little. And you do everything for them because they can do nothing. And then as they get bigger, you teach them to control their attitudes. They can't express rebellion and anger at you and all those things, or it is punished. So that they learn, I'm not supposed to throw things or kick mom and dad's shins. I can't get away with that. If I try it, I get hurt. Worse than I hurt them. So, they get disciplined. If you spare the rod, God says you spoil a child. He says if you don't use the rod on him, you're a reprobate, and your kid will grow up to be rebellious. So the whole idea of punishment is not to hurt the poor kid. The whole purpose is to teach them to control their attitude. Attitude adjustment moment, if you will. You can, the kid does something wrong, and you spank it. And the kid says, reel it off their room. They don't change their attitude. They're still rebellious. They're still snotty. I'm not done punishing my child until that child is sweet and compliant and loving. And I can say to my child, I love you. And the child will say back, I love you, Daddy. And I'll hold them a while and love them and cuddle them because their attitude changed. You actually make, if you just paddle them a little bit, don't hurt them, or once, and you get basic compliance. Okay, I won't touch that then. Drat you. Attitude's still bad. So I got to work with that kid, and it takes patience. Got to work with them until their attitude becomes sweet. God is working with us so that we have sweet attitudes. Right? He doesn't want rebellion in his kingdom. 
He doesn't want hate in his kingdom. He doesn't want chin-kicking in his kingdom. He wants peaceful, loving, gentle people who are meek and humble and not rebellious. He's already dealt with that with Satan. And he's dealt with it with an awful lot of people. So what's he doing with you and me? As I saw in a Berean a day or two ago, he's, he gives us trials. He gives us tests. He gives us punishment. He gives us all kinds of stuff down here that's unpleasant, doesn't he? Because he thinks, if I put them through that, maybe they'll decide that they want me to treat them better. So they'll change their attitude and their approach. And if he spanks us enough, what does it do? It drives us to our knees if we're converted at all. As we go to God and we say, Father, this is quite a trial or a punishment or whatever it is you're doing to me, but I'm tired of it and I'm going to change my attitude and I'm going to love you more. Please forgive me and remove this from me. And when your attitude's right, he will. He will. He'll take it away. Some things we live with for years and years and years because we don't realize how self-righteous, how selfish, how vain, how egocentric and selfish we truly are. And therefore, we go on and deal with the same things year after year after year after year because we're not bringing our attitudes and ourself under control. I spent quite a bit of time on that last week about how we don't control ourselves, but we expect everybody else to do what we want. Actually, it's our vanity and our ego that tells us those people don't do things the way I do, therefore the way they do it must be wrong. Because you obviously do it right, <laughs> you know? That's the selfishness in us. The self. I do it right. If they don't do it my way, it must be wrong. No. They're all the kinds of different personalities. We're all created equal. Do you realize that a man is not more important than a woman? A lot of men, maybe it's their insecurity or whatever, they think they're superior to a woman. No, they're not. Male and female created he them together to be equals, to be alike. Same seed, same kind, same everything except plumbing. A woman is not beneath a man. And now we got in our society where the women think that they're certainly better than the men. That they're better or above men. And the children all think that they're above parents. No, God created us all the same. Christ is not going to have a bride who is a lesser being than he is. He will be in charge as the husband. But his wife will be equal status with him as a God being. 
Same level, not beneath. Now, God put a man in charge of the family because he is a believer in order. He put the husband in charge, and that husband is to be a good steward of what he is there to oversee. He is to treat a wife with love and kindness and respect. He is to do everything he can for her to make her life easier in serving him. I mean, you know, the poor girl does wash his underwear and does change his bed and does cook for him and does a plethora of things. And it's her job. But she needs to be respected and loved for it, not treated as beneath him. This is all vanity and ego and selfishness. And sometimes as men we feel inadequate and therefore we... That was a problem in Worldwide. Here was the church of God starting out in this end time. And we suddenly realized that Dagwood and Blondie were not a good example. Because that comic strip always pictured Dagwood as a bumbling fool and Blondie as always knowing the right answer and always being in charge. There was a role reversal going on in our society and Dagwood and Blondie epitomized it, along with every sitcom sense, nearly. So we were being taught an upside-down way. So here was the church, and we began to read the Scriptures. Oh, Here's what God says. God said a man is to be in charge. He's to lead the family. And you know what? In a society dominated by women here in the last 50, 60, 70 years, men had not been taught leadership because strong masculine examples had basically disappeared. There weren't many men around who could lead a family properly. And it was a woman-dominated society, and the boys were taught by women and never learned to be a man because there, wasn't, there weren't very many around. So we told them, God says you're to be in charge, so you be in charge. And they had no skills, no training in how to be in charge. So they grabbed a two-before and said, I'm in charge around here. You do everything I say, because I'm in charge, and I'm the man. And that didn't work very good, because women don't like two-befores, whether they're real boards or whether they're words, feelings, and emotions. It's all the same. Abuse is mostly mental and emotional. It isn't usually two-befores. That's kind of out on the fringe mostly southeast of here. No, not really, but a lot of it. But emotional and mental abuse is prevalent everywhere because men don't know how to rule with love, with kindness, with gentleness, with sweetness. They think the only way that they're going to be in charge is to order and give edicts. No, that's not the way to lead. I made a deal with Marla 
many, 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 many years back. You're in charge of the kitchen. I'm in charge of the garage. You leave my garage alone, and I'll leave your kitchen alone. So we fixed it that way. I didn't bother in her kitchen, and she didn't bother in my garage. That all worked out pretty good. Now, if I'd have liked to have cooked, maybe it would have created a little bit of a problem because I'd have had to cook in her kitchen. But you know what? If I had, I would have come in and said, you know, I feel like cooking something today. I'd, I'd like to try it. Can I use the kitchen today? Are you busy using it? I mean, this is where you, this is normally what you run is your kitchen in the house. And if I'm coming in there, that's her job. So I don't come in and say, woman, get out of the kitchen. It's mine today. I come in and say, honey, are you planning on cooking or doing anything particular? Uh, can I use the kitchen? I'll clean up after myself. And she, after she got her jaw off the floor, she'd have said, okay. <laughs> and I could have used the kitchen. Now, you've got to work out things among yourselves. I'm just using a couple of personal examples. Some places, you might as well just tell the man, you cook all the time. I'll take care of whatever. Because some men just love to cook. And some women hate to cook. Now, Marla loved to cook, but she hated to sew. So, I was very careful even to ask her to put a button on. Because I knew she didn't care for sewing. So, I tried to keep my buttons on. But anyway... I digress and get into things that maybe we don't need in that sense, but we have to learn to control our emotions and our feelings toward God and toward man. Love Him with all our heart and love mankind as much as we love ourselves. That's what I told you last week. So we don't need to be going around trying to control everybody. We need to control that which God has given us to control. And that, number one, is ourself, our emotions, our feelings, our words, our actions. And then within the family, he has set up order that the husband is in charge, the wife is second in charge, and the kids have no authority, except what is given them over their toy box to keep the stuff picked up, or something you give them as a chore. And that order is to be followed and respected with love and kindness and gentleness. And we have to be very, very careful with it because it's easy to get in each other's way. And here we had Israel under Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and everything had gone pretty much okay. And then God sent them into slavery before they even became a nation. Now, what did he do there? They were there in subjection to the Mitzriamites. They had to do what they were told or be punished. They had to learn that they were to be ruled. They had to go through all kinds of hardship. Just as your child has to go through all kinds of hardship. 
I left that thought, and I meant to finish it. You're supposed to, as that child grows, take your hands slowly away. You're supposed to teach that child to control himself. And that doesn't happen overnight, have you noticed? It takes time. And as the child learns control at this level, at this age, then we take, give them a little more freedom and teach them to control themselves in those parameters. And as they get a little bigger, <clears throat> we teach them control on that level. Hopefully, by the time they reach God's majority of age of 20, they will be upstanding, upright, in control of their emotions, their feelings, their attitudes, their conduct, so they can be an upright, upstanding citizen in whatever society. And at age 20, you're supposed to be able to take down your poor hands that have been in this position for a long time, you're supposed to be able to take them down, and that 20-year-old is supposed to go forward as a self-controlled, in-control, adult human being. That's your goal as a purpose, and purpose as a, as a parent. Total control to no control. And we've blown it in our society. Now we've got 20, 30, 40, 50 year olds, 60 year olds that were still having to hold our hands up and try to help them control themselves because they never have learned yet in this society of Satan. It's not all your fault as a parent. I'm just telling you how God does it and what He expects. Of us. And we have to back each other up. You know, I have to go to God and ask Him for help and guidance and the words that I should speak because I don't know what words I should speak. So I go to Him and I go to His Word and I find, or He gives me, what He wants me to say. And then He backs me up. Now, that isn't always the case with people. In fact, it's rare with people. God will back his ministry up if it's his appointed ministry or prophet or whatever. And people will give obeisance and polish their boots and tell them how wonderful they are and then go around talking behind their back and stabbing them in the back. That's what it says about Ezekiel. It says that he would live with uh, scorpions, brambles, and briars and he says, O oh, son of man, they'll go around the corner outside the door and talk about you. But he says, I will cause them to know that I am God. So, when God sends somebody to take leadership, he backs them up. And as they work with his children, he backs them up. Parents have to do the same thing. If one parent tells the kids to do something, then the other parent backs them up. He doesn't countermand them. 
He doesn't say, oh, well, it's okay. You go ahead and do what you're doing. It's all right. Just because Daddy said so doesn't mean anything. Or just because Mommy said so, that doesn't mean anything. Go ahead. It's okay. Don't worry about it. You know what's going to happen there? That kid is going to come to disrespect both. May even come to hate both. Because they can't be depended on to back each other up. You know, parents should never fight in front of their children. If you need to fight, if you want to fight, have enough self-control to get out of the children's hearing and do your fighting there. And when you get it all worked out and settled... Then you come back and give the children a united front. That's what God does with people. And that's what he did here. He backed Moses up. He backed Aaron up. He had some problems with Moses. He fixed them. It's okay. Aaron can speak for you. It's all right. Don't worry about it. Oh, well, I didn't want you to do that. Well, that's too bad. You had an attitude, Moses. So we fixed it. Live with it. So he put those people there to live under the Egyptians, to learn to control themselves and their attitudes, because if they didn't, the Egyptians would beat them or kill them. So he put them through slavery before he ever blessed them. Do you ever think of that? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got certain blessings, but the nation as a whole before it was even born, went through adversity, difficulty, and slavery. And even with us today, in terms of conversion, God doesn't generally call us when we're five, six, eight, ten years old. Sometimes it happened that people were baptized before age 20, but I don't think it should happen anymore. Because God doesn't even consider you an adult till you're 20. In our nation, we call it 18, but God says 20. You're supposed to be an adult by then. But most of us, he let live 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years before he even called us to go through all kinds of adversity and trouble and mistakes in life and sins and everything that society is doing around us. And we came to the point we might have been getting sick of things, you know, after the second, third, fourth divorce or whatever, we begin to get tired of the way things are, and we would like a change of some kind. So we begin maybe to seek God. Oh, maybe there's some answers. Maybe things don't have to be the way they are. So he put them through 430 years of that, and they grew and they grew and they grew as a people until there were millions of them. And once they'd gone through that kind of adversity, I'll use this word, he called them, right? And he sent them a leader to do that calling. Sent Moses. Sent him out to get trained first. And then he sent him to lead them out of there. To take them to a promised land that had everything they could possibly need or want. You know, most people can't handle prosperity. I almost said it earlier, and the thought comes back to me here. I heard a man many, many years ago, 50 years ago maybe, in a Bible study, and I hadn't thought about it at the time. I was 20. 
I mean, 23 or 4 or 5. And he said, you can't give a young man too much too early. Because it will ruin him. He needs to work and work and learn and earn. And then when he has success, he will know how to handle it. But you're giving success as a kid, I mean 20, 25, 30 years old, 40 years old. You give him too much at that age, and he misuses it and abuses it. He didn't learn to be adult before he succeeded. So then he has success financially and has money, but he still can't control himself. And he's out doing things he shouldn't be doing because he never did learn, and now he has the money to do all those things. So he's ruined. Not much count for anybody, anywhere. How does God do it? Differently. In his system... You didn't give your kids everything. You held it back from them and gave it to them as an inheritance when you died. You didn't give them everything when they were young and spoil them and get them where they wanted, 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 and then were upset if they didn't get. No, you waited. I mean, yeah, you gave them food and shelter and took care of them, but you didn't give them everything they wanted. And then when you're old, maybe they're old enough by then to control things and mature enough to handle them right, and then you give it to them as an inheritance, and they can handle it properly. Now, the parable of the prodigal son was different. Here, the kid was demanding. Dad... You favor the other guy. I'm sick and tired of you and the way you favor him. And I want my money and I want to go and run my own life. Because you don't like me. You like him better. And I don't know what all he said, but he had a stinking rotten attitude. I'll guarantee you that. And it was so bad that his dad said, all right. That's the way you want to be? Here's your money, young man. You think you're smarter than me? You think you know better than me? You think I show favor to him instead of you? And you want to rebel and you want to go out on your own? Okay, here's your inheritance. See ya. Let him have it. Then what happened? He went out and spent it on women and song. Wine women and song. Which is what most young men do. One way or another. In some form. And then when he found himself broke, didn't have an inheritance anymore. It was all gone. He didn't have the maturity to handle it. Ruined him. And when it was all gone, he was in a pig pen, in the mud, in the manure, up to about here. And he was he had a pig on one side eating and a pig on the other side eating. And he was eating out of the trough, the slop. 
Back then, they didn't have all these fancy things in bags you gave pigs. You gave them anything that nobody else would eat. It's called slop. And you poured it in a tray. And they all came up and smacked and ate slop. And that's where the young man was. And then he went home to dad. And his dad said, I hope you've grown up. You can live here. We'll give you a bath. We'll give you a party. We're not giving you any more inheritance. You already had that. It all goes to this other son now. But we'll love you. Hope you've grown up and can be lovable and loved. Now that's what God did with Israel in Egypt. They wound up utter and total slaves, not for anything that they particularly had done. But he put them through an awful lot in hopes that by the time he chose to make them a nation on their own and to bless them and give them land, maybe they would be mature enough and have gone through enough that they would worship and love him for blessing them. And despite all his effort and his love, and his deliverance. As soon as they got on the other side of the Red Sea, they murmured and rebelled and said, you brought us out here to die. They couldn't accept that God had blessed them and delivered them and had their best interests in mind. How are we doing here? Do we truly believe that God loves us? Do we truly believe that he has our best interests in mind? We're dealing with scorpions and snakes here and in the world around us. And maybe it's sometimes hard to see how much God is loving us. He's about to give us great blessings. Can we handle them? Can we deal with them? Are we mature enough spiritually to deal with them? Well, they obviously weren't. So he said, all right, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years till every one of your carcasses lays down and dies. And I'm going to work with the next generation. I'll take your children into the promised land. So they hadn't learned in 430 years. And I don't know how much they learned in 40 years. But their children had enough experience in that 40 years in the wilderness. You'd think by now, if God bless them, they would be able to accept it and handle it and love Him for it. Wouldn't you? So He puts us through it a lot of times before He even calls us. And then after He calls us, what does He tell us? Through much tribulation enter the kingdom. I chasten every son whom I love. Swallow your vanity, your pride, and your ego and treat each other with love whether you like each other or not. Oh. Christian life's a tough one, you know that? What did Paul say? If there isn't a life beyond this where God will bless us 
way beyond anything we understand today, we are of all men most miserable. Out of all men on earth, if there isn't something better, we are of all men most miserable. Why? Because the rest of mankind doesn't have to work at controlling themselves, controlling their attitudes, controlling their words, controlling their children, if you will. They don't have to do any of this stuff. They can just party. They can chase wine, women, and song. They can have their sports. They can have their gods. They can have everything they want and ignore God. Who's worshipped more in our nation? God or the most valuable player of the NBA or the NFL? Who's revered more? Who's thought about more? God or our sports heroes? Or our movie heroes? Or our TV heroes? Or our internet games? Or whatever it is that we spend our time with instead of God? Now, he wants us to spend time with our families because they represent God and his government. So why do we spend all our time on things that we like? Because we must like them more than God. We spend more time with them than we do with God. Ask the average church member over the years and the decades how many hours they prayed or study the Bible compared to how many hours they watch TV. That will be a shocking revelation. Or whatever they do with their time. Some people worship little golf balls about this big around. They chase them all over the place. Because that's what they do. Any spare moment, that's what I do. So it can be many, many different things we put in place of God. Our time is our life. And if our time is spent on worldly, mundane things, then our life becomes that. You become what you think about and do is what you become. So that's what had become of these people. Now God brought them out, and then he sentenced them to another 40 years. Then after they all died... He says, all right, we'll go into a promised land that has everything you need. And we'll see if you'll obey. So, Moses sent spies into the country, the promised land. And 80% of them came out saying, we can't do this. These people are too big, and they got big swords, and they, don't, they won't like us, and they'll kill us all. We can't do this. God said, I'll go before you. Only Caleb and Joshua came out and said, let's go for it. We can do this. God will be on our side and we'll conquer the land and everything will work beautifully. We'll have a wonderful land. You know, God's giving the nation of Israel three chances. Did you ever count them up? He gave them one chance, as soon as they became a nation, to come out of Mitzrayim and obey him and serve him. And they went the other way. He gave them another chance. Well, he, that, he, gave them a, he brought them out of that. Then he gave them a chance in the promised land. 
And they blew that. He took them into captivity and left their land desolate for many, many generations. This land here in the United States. Thousands of years. It wasn't tilled. It wasn't used except by hunters and gatherers, basically, of whatever descent. It stayed empty. We were taken into captivity. North Africa, Middle East, Europe. Stayed that way for thousands of years. And then he let us come back here. After having gone through captivity, coming out of that in Europe, building its own society, and then still having problems, debtor's prison and whatever, God allowed a few to come here. They had another chance. And he gave us 430 years, same as we'd been in captivity. He gave us 430 years of freedom here to build a godly society. And where are we today? We're about to go back into captivity for the second time. He's going to give us another opportunity. Now, instead of being punished in Mithraim and dying in the 40 years wandering, this time he's going to kill a third of us by famine and pestilence, a third of us by the sword, and a third of us will go into captivity and a sword after them. So that when it's all said and done, there will be less than 10% left. And then he's going to say, have you grown up yet? Can you control yourselves yet? I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a thousand years of absolute peace without Satan around, with everything being done right. Are you going to listen this time? How many chances does Israel get? Now, I'm talking about the physical covenant, the first covenant. This nation today around us is living under the old covenant. They've not been given the new covenant. The only ones that have are those who have learned the truth of this word and been properly baptized and had hands laid on and are part of the church of God. <coughs> they have been given a shot at the new covenant. But the rest, all around us, they're still under the old covenant. And they're being punished under the terms of the Old Covenant. <coughs> so when I go back here to Deuteronomy 28, and some in Deuteronomy 26, it's in that context that God has put us through as a nation, all the way back, privation, trouble, difficulty, learning to live under difficult situations, and then turning it around and blessing. <coughs> and then we screw it up again, and he puts us in captivity, and then he offers us blessing again. 
And now we're at the point in this nation and all the nations of Israel (coughs) where we are about to be totally destroyed again. And one more chance to see if we'll obey God. Now that's what he's laying out for Israel here in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, and I didn't even really get into it today. But I wanted to give us this background of what he's trying to do with us. He's trying to get us to grow up and control ourselves and love him and obey him. And I use child rearing in our personal relationships to illustrate that we need to be doing with our lives and our families, the same thing God is trying to do with us as a nation. (coughs) And hopefully have better success at it than He did. But you know what? We have to use His rules. We have to use His laws. Because He made us out of the dust of the ground and made us humans and male and female. And he told us in this book how to live. And he told us, in so doing, that we are to control our thoughts, we are to control our hands and our eyes, we are to control our actions. We are supposed to come to the point when God says, you're adult now. You're spiritually mature now. I'm going to let you into my kingdom, and I know you will be a mature, adult, obedient brother, son, wife, friend in my kingdom forever and evermore, and will never cause a ripple of trouble ever. Now, ideally, when your kid reaches 20, they will have reached that point. And you will have done all the nasty, hurtful, dirty things because you love them and you want them to get to that point. And you don't give in to them when they have wrong attitudes. You teach them to control themselves and their thoughts and their attitudes. Wouldn't you, now as an adult, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years old, be better off had your parents understood that and taught you self-control from the time you were months old until you were 20 years of age? We didn't have that advantage for the most part, did we? Parents out in the world don't have a clue. Some of them have a little clue. They just don't know. They don't know these rules, and they don't follow them. And their kids grow up immature and out of control, and we got a whole society that's immature and out of control, with just a few exceptions, because we didn't understand. Now, I'm trying to use this physical analogy of us as parents and brothers and sisters to... to to show what God has been doing all this time. He's given us chances and opportunities. He's punished us. He's given us new opportunities. That's the way I need to do with my kid. Okay, he's acting up. I punish him. He gets under control. 
we have happiness and blessing for a little while. And then he gets out of control again. i got to put him back in. Then we'll have happiness and peace for a little while. That's what God's been doing with the nation of Israel on a huge scale this whole time. And it's difficult to achieve. It's difficult for him as God to achieve it with us. Because Satan is there to get in our way. And our human nature is there to get in our way. And therefore, we go out of the way. And then he has us to bring us back into the way. So he's been working with us for thousands of years. You know what? When it's all said and done, he's going to win. All that he's put Israel through, through the ages. Captivity, freedom. Captivity, freedom. Blessing, cursing. Blessing, cursing. He's going to put Satan away. And he is going to achieve saving all Israel. That's his goal, it's his purpose, and he's God. And he still loves us. And he's looked down on this whole mess down here, and he's chosen a few to give an upgraded covenant to, and I won't get into that today. He's chosen a few to work with to help him with the project that is ahead, where he finally gets it done. And he wants you and me to help him. Therefore, he's putting us through trial and adversity and pain and trouble in spiritual boot camp to get us to mature and to think right and be obedient and loving and kind and gentle so we'll know how to handle those people of Israel in the world tomorrow. And he is going to succeed. Because we've learned self-control, we've learned to control our thoughts and attitudes, and we will not be rebellious and talk behind God's back ever, like Satan did with a third of the angels and created a rebellion. That same thing played out right here in microcosm. People were nice to me to my face, backstabbed me, didn't listen, didn't do what they were told. I gave them too much, $100 a month for a whole acre and all the water you can eat, and autonomy over it, grow anything you want, do anything you want with that acre. They couldn't handle that. They thought they had to own it. What has played out with Israel through the ages has happened right here. They always stoned the leaders, the prophets, the God sent. Always. And the very first thing Zechariah says when he approaches the leadership and the gathering in Haggai and Zechariah, the very first thing he says is you better listen to the ones I send you and don't do like your fathers did. Thank you for still being here. Let's heed Zechariah 1. Because if we're going to have a godly society, we're going to have to come to love each other the way I've been preaching that we must. And I preach as much to me as I do at you.
we've got to love each other. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples.